Hi, I'm Allison Hare, a former corporate executive on a quest to help you and me create a little more space and freedom in our busy lives. Welcome to the Late Learner Podcast, where we are breaking down old, tired paradigms. You know, the ones that we all kind of live in, but we discover more modern approaches that just plain work better for you. So what are we late learning today? Well, this one is going to blow your freaking mind. It is going to be rethinking and redefining perfectionism. And you know, when you read a book and it's so groundbreaking and helpful, you can't help but tell all your friends you're posting about it. It's kind of like people are into CrossFit. They can't help but tell everybody about CrossFit. (laughs) This is the same thing. And for me, I was the recipient of essentially being attacked on all sides that I needed to read this award-winning book. Now, the title is called, I love this title, The Perfectionist Guide to Losing Control by Katherine Morgan Scheffler. Catherine is a seasoned psychotherapist and former in-house therapist for Google. She has a BA in psychology from UC Berkeley and two masters from Columbia University. I've got her incredibly refreshing and game-changing approach broken down for you today in this episode. We talk about self-punishment versus discipline. So think about the inner mechanics of how we talk to ourselves. Self-punishment versus discipline. We talk about adaptive and maladaptive perfectionism and why restoration and resting feels like failure to perfectionists. And my favorite, control versus power. Listen, there's so much packed into this episode and I needed to get this out to you right away. And at zero cost to you. So let's get to it. But before we jump into this truly must-learn episode, it's time for the good stuff. What is stuff? It's the surprisingly true, useful, fun fact. Have you heard the phrase intellectual humility? It's popped up on the psychology scene over the past few years. It has been gaining popularity and it is the curious joy of being wrong and happy to admit it. Now, let me put this into context for you. You know that, especially if you're in the U.S., that the political season is about to go all the way off the rails here in the United States. And it's an interesting concept. Once again, intellectual humility of being open-minded, being responsive to reasoning, and adapting accordingly in a healthy way, and being happy to admit it, other than the adamant belief to defend your stance at all costs, essentially more of a closed-minded approach. The opposite of an intellectual humility is intellectual domination. So this can show up in changing beliefs, like uh, changing beliefs in religion or politics and a general hard-headedness that I personally find annoying, but hope that we can take a moment when considering other people's beliefs to ask ourselves and our own beliefs, are we being intellectually humble? I'm sure we can all use advice like this, but I wanted to introduce it into the lexicon as we go into this insane political season. Okay, let's get to this freaking amazing conversation with Katherine Morgan Scheffler. 
Okay, I have been looking forward to this. We are talking to Katherine Morgan Schaffler. Welcome. Welcome to Late Learner. Thank you so much, Allison. I'm so happy to be here. Yes, that voice is giving me... So I've been in your land for... <laughs> A little while right now. Um, and just finished your book this morning. It's taken me a while because I've wanted to draw out some of the mm. ideas that were shared around perfectionism. So mm. I am curious to know, why did you hang your hat on perfectionism? You know, perfectionism showed up in every space I ever worked. And it's also been giant floating question mark in my own life. Um, someone told me a while I was writing the book that we write the books we most need ourselves. Mm. And when I examined what was happening in my practice, not just my private practice on Wall Street or my clinical work as the onsite therapist at Google or in a rehab or with kids who were traumatized, like all these different populations who were all struggling with very different, you know, what clinicians, what clinicians call presenting issues, hmm. they all came down to the same universal stuff. And perfectionism, surprisingly to me, was a foundational element of what people struggled with and also what helped pull people out of struggle. And to me, it is this universal, natural, healthy, positive impulse and power that, don't get me wrong, can also show up in really negative, dangerous iterations, right? Like any power can. Any power has a dichotomous nature. So, you know, love can show up in really negative, toxic, abusive iterations too. That doesn't make love a bad thing, right? So anything that's powerful you need boundaries around it. And anything that's powerful, you need a nuanced understanding of it. And we didn't have a nuanced understanding of perfectionism. And I looked to the research and the research world is exploring this in such an interesting kaleidoscopic way that we're not talking about in commercial wellness. We talk about perfectionism in this very matter of fact, like, well, perfectionism is bad, which means perfectionists are bad, which means in order to be good and healthy, words I can't stand really, <laughs> then you need to get rid of your perfectionism and not be a perfectionist. And that directive just didn't make a lot of sense to me because all the perfectionists I've ever worked with hold on to that identity in the same way that maybe an activist does or an artist does or a romantic does of like, this is a part of who I am. And so telling people to kind of be less of that doesn't work, doesn't make sense. I could answer this question for the next hour. There was just all these strings to pull. And every time I pulled a string, I became more, more curious. I started really uncovering my own views about this and wanted a containment place for all this stuff to say, wow, just like even just the fact that we look at perfectionism as a, like a behavioral thing, as well, I like all the pens in a row. When perfectionism, in my view, is so emotional in nature, like I want the perfect feeling, which doesn't mean happiness. Mm. It means like, I want to be, I want to allow myself to be mad, but not that mad. And I want to allow myself to feel freedom and wild, and, but also feel responsible in this. And we, and we walk around with these pie charts, like above our mm. heads, of how we're supposed to feel in certain scenarios, 
how we're supposed to feel when we see an X, how we're supposed to feel when we don't get promoted, how we're supposed to feel when we get married or don't. We don't even realize we're holding ourselves to a standard of perfection because the perfectionism is so nuanced. It's so individualized. It's like my version of what it means to be a perfect mom might be very different than someone else's version, but I still have one. That's what's so interesting to me is that only the perfectionist knows what that portion controlled kind of negative aspect of perfectionism looks like, feels like, sounds like, like whether it's healthy or not. You know, it's it's so personal. I feel like we need to dig right in here. I think you just came out with guns blazing because it's so counter cultural to what we have been taught about perfectionists. And I think understanding more of a nuance and reading your book and understanding that when you say perfectionist, I had so much resistance to this book. And I had a friend who said, you've got to read this. You've got to read this book. And I was like, I'm not really a perfectionist. And I read it and was like, holy shit, where, where has this book been? And I think understanding that you work with people as a therapist in New York City of people that look superficially like they've got it all together, but inside it's a totally different story. So how mm-hmm. did we get here culturally? Well, I think what's interesting is whenever you take, first of all, there's no clinical definition for perfectionist hmm. or perfectionism. It's not a clinical diagnosis. And so what happens is that therapists, researchers, uh, you know, coaches, they all operate with their own independent definitions. And sometimes they overlap and sometimes they're directly contravene each other. And perfectionism was first introduced into the world of psychology as this really positive thing. It's like, it. this is the way I think about it, Allison. This natural impulse that human beings all carry, we all have a little bit of a perfectionist in us. That natural impulse is to see the reality plunked down in your lap and then also be able to have the cognitive capacity to imagine like a new and improved reality. And also, you know, do the converse where you could see how things could be worse off. We are the only species that can do that. And perfectionists are people who see that new and improved version of something. And they have an active longing to bridge the gap, Mm. right? It is compulsory. Whereas like an idealist, for example, can see the gap and be like, wouldn't that be nice? And they can stop. Whereas a perfectionist is like, wouldn't that be nice? How can I move closer to that? And we often pathologize anything that's compulsive because we have this idea that mental health means that you're always in control. And I think that it's okay and natural for some things to be compulsory for human beings. I think human beings have a compulsion to make art and tell stories, and touch, and kiss, and be just together in some way. And I also think we have a compulsion to try to make the world, whether that's our internal world or the exterior world, or both better. That's the energy of the perfectionist. And if you don't manage that energy and understand it and put boundaries around it, 
like it will destroy you, mm. right? Mm. Um, but if you can manage it and you can understand it and you can channel it, it is just the most beautiful expression of self. It feels like all the edges are starting to melt away, that you have much more of a, a compassionate view of perfectionist. And what I love the terms that you use are adaptive versus maladaptive. And I think the way we perceive it as maladaptive, right? Like perfectionism, mm -hmm. unless you're Martha Stewart. Unless you're Martha Stewart. Yeah. And there are real reasons for that. Because <laughs> when you graft on these concepts onto culture, like we think of this stuff as factual when in fact they operate in trends, right? Right. So, perfectionist is a highly gendered term. I dedicate a whole chapter in the Perfectionist Guide to Losing Control to this, which is that you know, we live in a misogynist culture. I don't think that's a surprise to anybody. And the way that we perpetuate oppression, stereotypes, gender performance expectations is not ever explicit. We don't pull girls aside in school and say, okay, so we don't value your ideas and thoughts as much as the boys. So get, let me give you a heads up on that. And also we are going to view your body and the way you look as the primary source of your currency of power. So why don't you think about that for the rest of your life and focus on how you present to the world? We don't do that. We just, we, we pretend that all is equal and then we do variations of you know, implicitly sending the message by not paying women as much, for example, I would argue that's more explicit. But we also nestle those messages. You're not as valuable and you don't deserve as much power. We nestle those messages into everyday language. And like, let me give you some examples. When you call like strong-minded, that's a descriptor that is reserved for women. You don't mm. say, and look out for him. He's a strong-minded man. Strong-minded gains a superfluous quality when you're describing men because it's like, well, uh, men are strong-minded. They, they are authoritative. They're supposed to be that. In instead, you say like, she's a ball buster. She's strong-minded. Like she's, she's fiery. She's whatever. Resting bitch face is another, mm. right? It's like, we don't have an, any language for men's neutral facial expression because we see it as normal. We don't see it as normal if a woman is just sitting in conversation like this, right? Having, for anyone who's listening, I'm doing what <laughs> is culturally called the resting bitch face, which means I am not focused on 100% of the time being palatable, pleasing, smiling, friendly. That's a way that we communicate to women. You are supposed to act this way. And when you don't, we're going to create a language catch for it. Hot mess is another one. Hot that is a mess. descriptor of femininity. Yes. When you think of someone who's a hot mess, you either think of a woman or a very effeminate person, mm. right? And perfectionist is currently being used as an implicit language marker to women who are power-seeking and ambitious. And the implicit messaging is stop being that way. You are being too power-seeking and too ambitious, you need to calm down, balance out, become more well-rounded, blah, 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 blah. We don't call men who seek power 
anything but alpha males. Mm. Women who seek power are power hungry. Men who are perfectionistic, who have a strong vision, commit to that vision and really want that vision executed, clearly express that. Those people are visionary genius. We have Gordon Ramsay, Steve Jobs. When you think of like an Anna Wintour, right? Or Serena Williams, people who are also perfectionistic, clear, assertive, visionary, bold, ambitious, right. publicly bold. They're so they're difficult women, mm, right? Mm. They're they're perfectionists. And so it's really important that we understand that the undercurrent of all this messaging, because it's a powerful message that women are receiving that I really hope they don't listen to, which is balance out, find balance. Like, I don't think balance is real balance. I don't know one balanced woman. I don't know what that means. <laughs> Men aren't told to find balance. In so many interviews, I'm asked this totally gendered question of like, how do you balance it all? Like, I would like to know before I answer that question, when is the last time you asked a man that question? Mm. You know, because the the thing there is like, women are supposed to balance it all. We're supposed to be great at every single thing that we do. And it's just, you know, it just goes on and on in this in this way that I would like us to nip in the bud. And the book really addresses how perfectionism right now is seen as a disease. It's treated that way. When you look at other books about perfectionism, it's like overcome your perfectionism, cure your perfectionism. There is one that is called Killing the Perfectionist Within, mm. right? So we're on this like witch hunt for perfectionism. And the cure is balance and women are the patients. Hmm. And that's a, that's a model of how you pathologize ambition and power seeking in women. That's how you do it. You don't say to women explicitly, don't be that way. You say, you know what? Let me flag something for you. You're being a little perfectionistic, and let me tell you what to do instead, because I care about you and I want you to be healthy and I want you to do all these things. It's like, that's not a healthy directive. Hey, it's Allison. Thanks for listening. Did you know that the ideas shared in this episode are something I can help you implement in your own life? You can accelerate the outcomes you truly desire when you have someone pulling up a chair right next to you and saying, let's do this together. Let's put a strategy and a framework and an execution plan together and let's get it done. Schedule a free exploratory call with me at allisonhair.com forward slash schedule. If we're thinking about post Me Too movement, I think that there is more of attention and understanding of the differences that are more clear now, where it was just embedded in the culture as it has been for centuries. And there was a passage you put in the book. And honestly, this is what had me look you up and Instagram you and say, I need to have you on my podcast because it was so profound. And you're a really great storyteller in, in this book. But there was a vignette of sorts that you had talked about how we as women that we have our expectations, but in order for us to be excellent, we need to wake up earlier, do more, be more productive before anybody else gets up. And I was like, <laughs> yeah. this is my life. This is exactly yeah. what my life had been. And 
not only that, I was proud of it. I was mm-hmm. so proud that I could get so much done. And it almost like smacked me in the face of like, no, that's not good. <laughs> it's not, yeah. it needs to be rethought. And, right, and right. I thought that was interesting that yes, you need to be, do it all, but do it all outside of all the obligations that you already have that you are presenting. There's like a fine print. <laughs> it's like, Women, absolutely. We are in a new and unprecedented time. Be all of who you are. Do anything you want. As long as everyone around you is taken care of. Yes. That was exactly it. And, <laughs> and, and like also, like you can do anything you want as long as you pay the cost of you, you know, taking, let's say, we, you know, that is one example of like getting up two hours early while all the kids are sleeping and, and whatever else, as opposed to I'm not making dinner or something, you know, I mean, as opposed to something like I'm not sending the thank you cards or like these traditionally domestic tasks and emotional labor that women are expected to pay the cost for. And we talk about extricating ourselves from those roles as if it's immediately empowering without giving women and each other a heads up to like, people are going to be pissed off at you for not behaving in the way that you're expected to behave in this culture. Yeah, It's not immediately empowering. It's difficult. And people are not going to understand why you're doing what you're doing and they're going to call you selfish and and you're going to feel the need to perhaps defend yourself or compensate for that in some way when you have nothing to prove, defend or compensate for. You know. But I think the shame just, part is mm-hmm. self-inflicted too. If I don't do this. So yeah. I think there is a reframe that's happening. And I would love Catherine if you could help us understand the five distinct types of perfectionism because this blew my mind. Would you mind sharing with us? Yeah, sure. Yes. And so the whole book, if I can go 30,000 feet in the air. People are going to start taking notes. (laughs) They're going to be (laughs) self-identifying. You've been told your whole life perfectionism is bad and you need to get rid of it. Perfectionism is nobody's problem. It is zero people's problem. How you respond to your perfectionism determines whether you are in a healthy or unhealthy space. You can either respond to missteps with self-compassion, or you can respond with punishment. Most of us respond to punishment just because we don't know what else to do. We want to be accountable and get better. It's not that everything you know about perfectionism is wrong. It's that it's not at all the whole story. So there are five types of perfectionists. The first is the procrastinated perfectionist. This is some an archetype I think we're all very familiar with. I'm going to simplify all of these and talk about the pros and cons. So the simplified version of this is procrastinated perfectionists like the conditions to be perfect before they start, right? And the pros of this type are that procrastinated perfectionists are so thoughtful. They can see everything from a 360-degree angle. They are so well-prepared. They're really not impulsive people, which is such an asset to have. As someone who can be very impulsive, I'm like, oh, I wish I could be less impulsive sometimes. (laughs) The problem is that sometimes these people, when they're not managing their perfectionism, their preparative measures spill past the point of diminishing returns, and they end up like 
never executing on the thing they really long to do. And that's so painful. It's so painful. The counterpart to the procrastinated perfectionist is the messy perfectionist. And these people are people who are what I call start happy. That's me. I would, <laughs> I, me. I would say, I would say that they push through the anxiety of a new beginning, but it's like, there is no anxiety of a new beginning. Like beginnings are so romanticized for messy perfectionists. They just effortlessly cast such a wide net into the world, can start a million projects, not just start it, but like feel is so contagiously enthusiastic about starting. You know, it's a wonderful quality and they want the middle of the process to be as perfect and kind of romanticized as the as the beginning felt. And it's not, right? Because once you create something and it's alive out in the world, it shifts, it changes, there are challenges, there's tedium. And so when they when messy perfectionists hit the tedium and they're not managing their perfectionism, they can be feel really deflated and confused as to like, well, where did all my energy go? I must not care enough. I must not be disciplined enough. People don't take me seriously enough. And so they say yes to a million things without actually committing to anything. And these can drive really false narratives around um, their ability to like get stuff done. Intense perfectionists want the end of the process to be perfect. So these are people who are hyper-focused on the outcome. Procrastinated perfectionists want the beginning to be perfect. Messy perfectionists want the middle to be stay perfect. Uh, intense perfectionists want the end to be perfect. So these are people who have razor-sharp focus. They are going to get the job done. We all know people like this mm-hmm. where it's like, you give it to them, it's going to get done. However, if you're not managing this kind of perfectionism, you get the job done at the cost of your own well-being and sometimes the well-being of people around you. And it's like the means don't always justify the ends, but intense perfectionists forget that. Then we have Parisian perfectionists. This kind I love of this perfectionism. Parisian perfectionists. Yeah, well, <laughs> it's boy, I made it from the aesthetic of French women who have this beautiful kind of um, less is more, simplicity is the ultimate sophistication. I'm not trying too hard energy about the way that they present themselves in the world, their beauty aesthetic. And it speaks to the Parisian perfectionist because the Parisian perfectionist wants to be perfectly liked or perfectly understood and wants to perfectly like and understand others. So every perfectionist is seeking an ideal. Parisian perfectionists want ideal connections. And they feel a sense of embarrassment about how hard they are trying. And so they they kind of carry this desire to present as effortlessly cool. Like, I don't care that much if you like me or not. I could take it or leave hmm. it when in fact, like they do care very much and it's okay to care. You know, the strengths of this type are that you don't have to explain the importance of a relationship and how relationships are such powerful forces in our lives to a Parisian perfectionist. They just get it. They just automatically know, like, well, of course, the quality of the relationships to the people around us like carry a huge primary impact on our wellness. It's so obvious to them. You have to explain that to an intense perfectionist. You have to be like, look, if you continue managing your team this way, you're going to hit your Q3 goals and then everyone's going to quit in Q4. Right. Like, you got to pull back a little bit on in this way and 
So the cons of the Parisian perfectionist are that sometimes we try to take shortcuts to connection. I mean, we all do this and you can get into really toxic people pleasing stuff and just really have an abandonment of self. And then the last one is the classic perfectionist. This is the type we think about most when we think about the archetype of what a perfectionist is. These are people who really, on the prose side, just naturally infuse structure into every situation that they go into. It's like an art for them. And the cons to this type are that sometimes infusing a sense of structure and routine, as curative as it can be, isn't always an emotional experience or a collaborative experience for people. So they can come across as transactional Mm. when they're actually offering their deepest value to you and saying like beauty, the way something looks or presents or like structure, calm, cleanliness, that's so important because it helps me access my internal energy. So I'm going to try to create that for you when that's not always what helps other people access their best selves, you know? So it can feel kind of transactional and like demanding in some ways. And they can also feel taken for granted because it's like, oh, that person will create the deck or plan the vacation. They like doing stuff like that. And it's like, you may like it as a classic perfectionist, plan everything and do all the things. That doesn't mean it's not work or that you don't want to be acknowledged and appreciated for it. So those are sort of splash headliney way of explaining <laughs> the five types. And I lay out the five types in the book not to say, hey, be less of a procrastinator perfectionist, be less of a messy perfectionist, but instead to say, be all of who you are, understand who you are so that you can understand where you need the most support and where you can effortlessly give the most support. You know, you get a procrastinator perfectionist with a messy perfectionist, for example, And it's like, boom, we don't need to take all our weaknesses and try to turn them into strengths so that we could be good at everything. (laughs) That's not possible. I think that's a waste of time. I think a better thing to do is to understand our strengths and our pain points, really maximize our strengths and reach out to other people whose strengths are our weaknesses, right? So if you're having a hard time, like putting your house on the market, for example, identify like a messy perfectionist, invite them over, they'll get it all going. (laughs) And then once the project is going, procrastinator perfectionists are so great at following through and, and seeing the project through. And this I'm talking about in, in like project work achievement context, but there it's also relationship wise, right? So like a procrastinator perfectionist who really wants to start dating, for example, might delay that because they're like, I don't know about these pictures for this dating profile, or I don't know that, you know, it's like the things that we delay for ourselves are not just the aversive things like doing taxes. It's, it's often actually surprisingly for me, the things we most want. Mm. And so Hmm. really understanding like what's hard for me, what's easy for other people let me ask those people to help me. And then what's hard for others? What's so easy to me that I, I don't even recognize it as a gift? Let me offer that to others. Here's what I'm hearing about this, that it just hit me like a ton of bricks. Because I think all of this is such a reframe, but also when we think of our own personal journeys into mental health, mental wellness, whatever that is, it is a, a, a lonely journey, right? Like you, this is you, you've got to figure it out yourself. 
And I think that your paradigm that you create here is more of a connective one. It's more of one that is collaborative. And I think of opening up the doors to something more connective has so many great benefits. But I wonder about your thoughts on self-worth. So when you had said, often the things that stop us are the things we want the most. I know that you have worked with people that are really high-performing women who have accomplished a lot of things and also struggle with these types of, whether it's maladaptive perfectionism or whatever. How do you layer in Mm -hmm. self-worth through this context? Well, I want to say first, I'm so happy to hear you recognizing the need for connection and all of this to others. Because we have this idea of mental health right now in our culture that like we go to therapy alone. Yeah. And, and heal ourselves alone and, and get to this shinier version of ourselves. And then we go out into the world and unleash who we are. And that's not how it works. We heal through connections. We need each mm. other. We need validation. Mm. We need all these things that we're told we're not supposed to need. Independence is not the goal. Like interdependence is the goal. There's codependence. Oh. Interdependence and independence. (laughs) That's really good. Well, we operate on all these binaries all the time. Like we're either healthy or we're not, or we're codependent or independent. And it's like there's thousands of miles of middle ground of this stuff. And part of what I tried to do in the Perfectionist Guide to Losing Control was like offer language for that, Mm. right? Um, Language has always been like a lighthouse to me. And when I can't find the language for something, that's why I came up with the, the language of the five types because it's like saying, oh, this stuff is nuanced. It's not really sticky. Let me contain how it's nuanced in language. And to the self-worth part, one way to understand a concept is, I don't know if this is what you do, but I always start by saying like, well, what is this not? Hmm. And self-worth is not self-esteem. And I think we conflate the two a lot. So self-esteem is how you think, Right. Dr. Brene Brown talks about this so beautifully in her research. Self-esteem is like, I think I'm really excellent at soccer, really terrible at math, pretty, smart, funny, a bad plumber. I don't know. (laughs) And self-worth is about what you believe you deserve. So self-worth is like, I deserve reciprocity, healthy friendships, love, freedom, dignity, joy, pleasure without having to earn it. And so a lot of people who are, you know, quote unquote, high achievers have great self-esteem they know they're high earners. They know they're smart. They might know they're attractive or whatever else it is. Self-esteem doesn't guarantee self-worth. Self-esteem actually has very little to do with self-worth. Self-worth, in my view, is about understanding that just because you are a human being, you are automatically, as a birthright, entitled to joy, freedom, love, dignity, and connection. Those five things are not negotiable. They're not earned. You don't earn your freedom as a human being. It's a birthright. You don't earn dignity, which is I am going to treat you like a human being. It's a birthright. Now, I'm not here to say, Allison, that we should all just treat each other in this like completely all the time, generous of everything way. Like I think some things are earned. Like respect for me is earned. 
Respect is different than dignity. Dignity is just treating a human being like a human being. Respect is saying, wow, there's something about the way you show up in the world that I really admire and I respect you. And I don't give respect to everybody. You know, sometimes I get these just gross comments from men in my social media feeds. Like, you want me to just respect that? What is there Mm. respect, you know? But am I going to treat every human being like a human being, regardless of whether they're showing up as their best or worst selves? Like, yeah, because if we stop doing that, which, you know, we have in some cases, serious cultural dysfunction arises. So that to me is the self-worth component is like, I'm not concerned so much about what you think about yourself. You can have really bad self-esteem changes depending on your your context. Like you can think I'm a great public speaker, hmm, but somehow I'm not, you know, great at podcasting or I'm good at this. I'm not good at that. It's just what you think. It doesn't impact. If I go out on a date, for example, and I'm having just like one of those gross days where I'm like, oh, I don't feel, I don't feel like myself. I don't feel pretty. I don't feel attractive. I don't feel whatever. That doesn't mean that then I think it's okay for my date to treat me in any kind of lesser way because my self-worth remains the same whether I am feeling great or not. And you can have really high self-worth and low self-esteem or high self-esteem and high self-worth or low on both, you know? So it's really about understanding what do I believe I don't have to earn? And I think a lot of people are conditioned in this culture to believe that pleasure, not talking about immediate gratification, but real taking pleasure and joy in your life is earned. You do that after you do a lot of hard work Mm -hmm. and prove how productive and valuable and useful you are. And after you get your goals and you can have all the pleasure you want on Saturday morning between 10 and 12. Whatever. You know, it's like- It's so limited. I mean, you just have to look at diet culture to say like- You can have chocolate cake and you know what? You deserve it as a treat, as a reward, as this. It's like all this dog clicker language that's delivered to women about when you're allowed to take joy in your life or be pleased about who you are. It's like, well, let me see your scroll long checklist of everything that you did and how productive you are. And I'll tell you how much pleasure and joy you deserve. But I think that's embedded though. I think it's embedded in our programming and what what was there. And I think you had put, when it comes to self-punishment, we mistake self-punishment for personal accountability. So I was like, uh, everything illuminated when you talked about self-punishment versus discipline. So how do we rethink self-punishment, discipline, personal accountability? Because what we learned is that we need to control ourselves somehow to get a certain outcome before we're able to experience pleasure, joy, reward, whatever that is. Dog, I like the dog clicker language. I've never heard that before. Yeah. So punishment is a through line in our culture. If our culture is the parent, our parent is unconscious, right? Our parent is like living way behind the times and (laughs) we use punishment because we don't know what else to do and we don't understand the difference between punishment and discipline, accountability, rehabilitation, or natural consequences. So those four things, natural consequences, discipline, accountability, and rehabilitation, they all work. 
They're all very effective at helping us grow and change. Punishment doesn't work. It doesn't do anything but create more pain. That's the primary goal of punishment. And that's how you can tell if you're punishing yourself or others. Your goal and your strategy is to create pain. And the grand plan is like, I'm going to heal myself by hurting myself. And I'm going to make this so painful for myself that I'm never going to do it again. So when I worked in a rehab, for example, and someone would relapse, oh my God, the way that we lay into ourselves when we are making progress. I mean, it's the new year, right? So I think a lot of people might feel this wave soon of like, I said I was I was not going to do this this year. And here I am now calling this person back into my life who I said I wasn't going to associate with Mm. anymore or drinking alcohol when I said I was going to stop drinking or blah, 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 all this stuff. When am I going to get it together? That's it. Tomorrow, blah, blah. And we just kind of like berate ourselves and we deny ourselves things that might feel good. Like instead of saying, you know what? I really slipped up. I got to take a hot bath and have a nourishing meal tonight and restore myself. Mm. It's like, we just allow this negative self-talk. We isolate ourselves until we can get it together. And, you know, we deny ourselves things that we want and would bring us pleasure because we feel that well, we don't deserve them anymore. And the thing about being in pain is that the more pain you're in, the more weak you feel and the less likely you are to make choices mm. that bring you to your best self. When we feel like shit. That's not when we make the big, bold, healthy, strong, brave decisions. If you think about times in your life when you have been most generous, most bold, most brave, most committed, all that stuff, it's because you feel strong and you are attached to a sense of, I'm a good person who may make mistakes sometimes, but I trust myself. And I'll get it right. I just, I, you know, yeah, I'm hitting some bumps, but I can get this. I could figure this hmm. out. It's because you have treated yourself with some degree of compassion. You know, discipline, for example, seeks to create structure. Punishment just seeks to create pain. Discipline seeks to stop negative behaviors by the promotion of positive behaviors, right? So I am going to infuse my life with as much positive stuff as I can so that I can get to my goal. Punishment just seeks to extinguish negative behaviors by bringing more pain. Mm. There's all these all these distinctions that I lay out in the Perfectionist Guide to Losing Control because it's like people either feel, again, we get caught in this binary of I'm either punishing myself or letting myself off the hook. Right. And again, thousands of miles of road in between. There's so much middle ground. And why would we know this stuff? We don't have emotional literacy in school. We have physical education because as a public health priority, we understand that like kids need to be physical. We don't have emotional education. Emotional literacy. Because our culture is- I like that. Yeah. We're emotionally illiterate. Mm. Like I've been in the therapy space almost my whole life. I was in my 20s before I heard the word boundaries. We don't automatically know this stuff and that's Okay. We don't teach it or prioritize it in this culture. If you know anything about personal development and improvement, it's because you've independently sought out that study. It's not because you had, here's boundaries class in seventh grade. It's not because you had, here's what it means to emotionally regulate instead of numb out in high school. We learned about like calculus and this and that, whatever. 
And that's going to shift. That's going to change. We'll get there, but we're not there yet. And so we have to deal with the reality that's in front of us, which is that like, we don't know what else to do other than punish ourselves or punish other people. Mm. That's the question, Allison, is like, am I trying to create pain for this? Like, Think about something so simple like the silent treatment. When you give someone in your life the silent passive aggressive, baby. (laughs) Passive aggressive. The goal there is like, I'm gonna make you hurt by ignoring you. And that's gonna make you understand what I need. No, it's Mm. not. You don't know, no one's gonna magically understand what you need because you acted in this passive aggressive way. You're only gonna get more pissed off because now you're hurting and you're contracted and you're resentful, and you're holding the expectation that the other person should fix that. Yet you shouldn't have to take responsibility for that. You're like stuck. You're so stuck. And and we all get so stuck. There's no judgment to it. But this is how you get unstuck, is you abandon punishment, and you do the other four things as they're appropriate. What keeps coming up for me here, again, is the need for a language to start to turn the ship here. And personally, I did this a couple of weeks ago where I did a week-long audit. And so I do not consider myself as somebody who thinks badly about myself. I don't talk badly about myself. I uh, present very confident. And I Mm -hmm. did an audit where every time that I felt something uncomfortable, just note what it is and journal it. And what I learned was that I am merciless, brutal. Mm. I had no idea that I was brutal about what? Just self-critical of like, how dare you Mm. if you don't do this? And I had no Mm. awareness at all that this, you know, like you understand when you're being critical, okay. And I would invite the listeners to maybe do this yourself and notice how kind are you being? And as I was figuring out like, oh my God, it feels like a terrorist in my mind that I had no idea was there was running the show. And what really illuminated in your book was the application of self-compassion and adding a layer of compassion and curiosity and kind of shifting the language around what that looks like. And it was not letting you off the hook or giving you an excuse. Can you share more about that? Yeah. So self-compassion, again, because we're all emotionally illiterate, we don't know what that means. And we think it means letting yourself off the hook and being super nice to yourself, which it's not. It's a, I use Dr. Kristen Neff's model of um, three tiers to self-compassion and self-compassion is a skill. It's not an optional skill. If you want to heal and grow, You need to understand how to be compassionate with yourself. So those three tiers are common humanity of just understanding that like whatever problem you're having or feeling you're feeling, it's natural. Like you're not the only human being who's ever felt this. You're not alone. We intellectualize that and and concede to it, Um, but somehow it doesn't emotionally register all the time. Hmm. And it's like, oh, if we could just drop into a room of 50 people all having the exact same problem as us, the same problem with their body or in their marriage or in their career or or whatever it is, and just listen. We wouldn't even have to talk. 
that would that listening itself would be curative because we'd be like, oh, like it's not me. This is what it's like to be a human being. Being mm-hmm. a human being is hard sometimes. It's hard in a lot of different flavors. Whatever your flavor is, it's millions of other people's flavor. I promise. But so the the other components are kindness. And to be kind to ourselves, it's not you have to be honest. And kindness means you have to acknowledge that you're in pain. So self-compassion says like, let's say you had a really tough meeting and you did not perform the way you wanted to perform in that meeting. You said something that was reckless in some way. Self-compassion is not like, don't worry, it wasn't reckless, it's fine. That's lying to yourself. That's not kind. Self-compassion is first acknowledging the pain. Like you said the wrong thing. Oh, that's the worst. We have all been there. That's the common humanity part. Like that wasn't the best thing to say. And that's painful. It's painful to be the one in the room who didn't say the best thing or or the right thing or whatever. And then doing something kind for yourself. When we skip that component, we just numb out. That's like, I'm just going to look at, watch Netflix all night long and just pretend this didn't happen and hope that magically resets me and it doesn't. And then the third component is mindfulness. And that's understanding that we are not whatever we're feeling or thinking, right? Like we're not ever only one thing. And while you might feel really embarrassed or angry or shameful or whatever it is, if you can turn your head and try to mine your whole body and your whole life for other things that you feel, you give, you know, less power to that one emotion or experience that's eclipsing your whole Mm. landscape. If you say like, I am angry and I'm really excited about this dinner that I have in two weeks that I totally forgot about because I've been obsessed with thinking about this thing. I am angry and I feel sensual. I am angry and I'm really curious about this thing. I am angry and, you know, maybe it's another difficult feeling, right? I'm angry and resentful, you know, and just really getting like a patchwork of your experiences and and your own multidimensionality and being mindful of that so that you don't become like what you feel, Mm. you know? I wrote down a quote from your book and I loved it. It said, healing is an honest acknowledgement made silently in your head. I'm lonely. I'm ready. I'm scared. And I thought that was beautiful of just acknowledging it. And, you know, which kind of brings us to the restoration part. And also in your book, you acknowledge that restoration feels like failure to perfectionists. There's a lot of resistance to what does restoration look like? Yeah. I think a lot of people feel tired and they're like, what am I doing now? (laughs) Right. Like, why am I tired in the afternoon? Like, how can I never be tired and just somehow go from being awake, doing all the things that I need to do with full optimal premium energy, and then, you know, doing my nighttime routine and falling asleep 15 minutes within my head hitting the pillow. It's like, if you could figure that out, please go to my website, <laughs> kathymorganshoffler.com, email me, call me, do all the things I need to know that too. I mean, it is a fantasy, right? That we could just seamlessly weave in and out of our yeah. lives, our roles, our demands, our emotional reactions, all this stuff. And we think of healing as this grand event when healing is 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 often invisible. It's so microscopic and granular. It's like drinking half a glass of water instead of no water. And like I said in the quote that you quoted, 
it's acknowledging like, I don't want this anymore. Hmm. That can be really painful, especially if you've spent, let's say, the last eight years of your life trying to become partner at a law firm, saying like, I don't want this. I don't know if I ever wanted this. I didn't. I don't know if I want to be with this person. I don't know if I like this. Even just challenging what we've built our lives around is hard because it's like, oh, what if it's true that I don't want this? I have to change have to do so something. Much. That's the tension. Yeah. You do. And like, that's everybody's experience though. And it's okay for you to change your mind. It's okay for you to not know if we're constantly growing and changing, like how can we be permanently sure about anything? It's such a pressure that we place upon ourselves. And I just think it's unnecessary. I think it's okay to shift and grow. And that's not an abandonment of anything. It's an evolution. So the idea to get back to your question of what we need through that evolution is that we need to restore ourselves. And restoration is a two-part process as I see it. You've got to empty yourself out. You've got to decompress. Mm. And then you have to fill yourself back up with something that is meaningful to you. And decompression means literally a reduction in pressure. And if you're someone who thrives on pressure, you don't really know how yes. to decompress, right? And so to decompress, you have to empty out. It's like, think about breathing. It's like in order to take a breath and get the oxygen you need, you have to also exhale. They're not iterative. Like you don't have to do one, two, one, two, but you can't skip a step. And so decompression and emptying out looks like really turning off your brain and doing just something that would otherwise be Dumb is the word that comes to mind. <laughs> right? Love like, Island is going on. Is Love Island, right? Golden I mean, Bachelor. I totally. And sometimes it's kind of like, sometimes a lot of people will clean the yard or rake the lead, whatever. Something Mindless. that it, it looks yeah. different for everybody. But it's like when your brain is off, for me, I watch action movies to decompress. <laughs> it's the opposite nice. of what I think about uh -huh. all day. I think about embodiment, <laughs> interpersonal dynamics, like what is self-worth versus self-esteem? It's like, I just want to see a bunch of shit explode, exactly. <laughs> car chases. I don't care about character development or plot. Like I, I, I didn't understand it for so long, Allison. I was like, why am I watching these broy action movies. Broy. <laughs> and that is not who I am. I, I didn't get it. And then I was like, oh, this is a vacation for my yes. brain. Like I'm not thinking. And, and, and so many smart, talented, incredible women are like, why do I like this trashiest <laughs> show ever on TV? I'm like, because you don't live in that space. Because you're trying to empty out, you're trying to turn off your brain and just not think about all the things that you constantly think about. Give your psyche a rest. And then when you exhale, you know, that proverbial exhale of your psyche, then you can fill yourself back up with things that are meaningful to you. What often happens is that people are like, I need to restore. Let me have a conversation with my best friend about the things that are most important to us. It's like, there's no room for that conversation to huh. land because you haven't emptied out. So mm. you might have the conversation and it doesn't move the needle for you. And then we get into this tricky space of thinking like, well, something's wrong with me. Because it's my best friend. And if they can't make me feel better, then like, what's wrong? I must be depressed or this or that or whatever. And we jump to all the things that are wrong with us instead of just saying like, maybe I just, I just didn't give myself the time and space to empty out. Again, nobody teaches you how to restore. 
We just are expected to know how to do this stuff. And these things operate in a rhythm. They're very individual. So you have to experiment and have fun experimenting. Like, what do you naturally gravitate to? What feels silly to you? What do you not get? What is your version of my bro action movies? Give yourself permission to do that because it is actually integral to you operating with premium quality energy in the world. And if you operate for one hour with premium quality energy, you can get more done in that hour than the eight hours of burnt out you, frustrated you, tired you, whatever. And I don't lay that framework down to say the goal is to be productive and get things done. I mean productive in a very elastic version of that definition of like productive, meaning you are animating who you are out in the world, whatever that is for you. You really, you really went on a walk with your friend and you were present the whole time and you showed up for them and you could do that because you had premium quality energy. You had premium quality energy because you were actually restored. Watching Netflix all night, while sometimes that can be a decompression, like is often just a numbing. And the difference between numbing and restoring, numbing meaning like I just don't want to feel what I'm feeling and I'm just going to vacate the premises, is that after it, it can look very identical on the surface, like I could watch an action movie and be numbing or I could be restoring. The difference is after you restore, you actually feel good. Numbing doesn't make you feel good. It makes you feel nothing. That's why you you never are done binge watching the Netflix and you get that screen thing of like, are you still watching? Because you're not there. You're not, you're not in the experience of it. You're just like muted. You're one dimensional. You don't feel anything. And numbing is important. We all numb sometimes. It cannot be a primary coping mechanism Mm. because you can't selectively numb. So if you get yourself to not feel any of the stress, you also can't access any of the joy, curiosity, excitement, et cetera. I love that you call, you sneakily call play active relaxation in your book. I was laughing. Yeah. I know. Well, because there's such a resistance. There's such a resistance. I I feel a resistance Mm. to it too. So many times I've gone to like workshops and things like that where everyone's like, close your eyes and touch their like the most loving healing part of yourself. I'm like, I'm uncomfortable. (laughs) I don't want, like, can we get to the practical, you know, application of this stuff? Like I live in these two worlds where I understand the importance of identifying your deepest whole most real self and honoring that and also not wanting to speak in this florid flowery way all the time, mm-hmm. you know, and like want to get your goals accomplished and feel like there's nothing wrong with that. I don't want to pathologize my own ambition too. And so, yes, I think about play a lot. And I think about the the famed play therapist, um, Dr. Brian Sutton, who said that um, the opposite of play isn't work. The opposite of play is depression. Like you gotta have some sense of like, I'm doing this for fun. Again, there's a lot of resistance to that word too, but like I'm doing this because it gives me energy because there's some playfulness around it. I don't mean like you have to literally play ping pong or something, right? Styling a, a shelf and spending 45 minutes doing that can be like a form of play for some people right? Where it's just like, this engages me and my creative self in some way. I love this. And I wonder about, your book is about losing control. So as you lose control to gain your power, 
Can we talk about Beyonce? <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> such I, a great um, you know, story. The title, <laughs> <laughs> the title of the book is "The Perfectionist's Guide to Losing Control: A Path to Peace and Power." And I see control as kind of this cardboard cutout of real power. And when we don't have power, we really get over-indexed on control. And if you think about power as a kind of security. And I don't know, I'm jumping to a relationship example. Like if you feel really secure in your relationship and your partner's like, um, I'm going to go out, I'm going to go out tonight. I'll, I'll see you back here at 11 or I'll text you tomorrow. If you are in a control mindset, you might really need to know like, who are you with? Where are you going? What are you doing? How do you know this person? How long have you, you know, all that stuff. The more secure you feel, the more you're okay with just um, letting other people do what they need to do and trusting yourself that if you discover that something has happened that you don't want, like, or isn't aligned with your values, that you will course correct for that on your own. So people who have real power, the difference between control and power is that like control is very transactional. If we're in a meeting and I give you control, I have relinquished my control. I don't have any control. Hmm. You have the control, right? If I am a powerful person and I give you power, I empower you, I haven't lost any of my power, right? So power is this really generous, infinite hmm. thing. It is us tapped into our knowing of our self-worth. That's what power means to me. Power is you understanding the immutability of your worth, that there's nothing you could say to me in this conversation, Allison, that is going to make me feel like I don't deserve freedom or I don't deserve love or I don't deserve all the stuff we talked about at the top of the conversation. And people who are controlling don't feel that, right? So they're like, let me make sure Allison likes me so that I feel assured by her validation, right? The Beyonce thing is like, Beyonce is such a great example of someone who occupies their power because power, again, like I wrote a book because this stuff doesn't all fit in these great, handy, convenient soundbite ways. But power is really about understanding your presence and that the power of the energy you bring into the room with you is so much more important than anything you could ever do. Mm. And your presence is what imbues your life with the signature thing that no one else can bring. Like you're so powerful in a way that is, is unique to you. And people who know that and occupy themselves from a state of presence, it's like I use this example of like Beyonce is not performing for us as much as she is showcasing her presence. Because a lot of people mm. are beautiful. A lot of people mm. are good at singing. A lot of people are talented, right? But not a lot of people can master their presence as consistently as she has. That is her skill. That is what she has honed. That is why she is a top artist. That is why also she can walk on stage in a bedsheet. <laughs> it's true. And you would still be captivated. You would be captivated by her. Uh, because she would be occupying her power. And we love being around people who can occupy their presence and power because it awakens us to our own power. It's really difficult to forget that we are powerful and that we have presence when we are in the company of someone who's embodying it themselves. Mm. 
you know, it's really hard to, to carry that. Um, whereas like when we're around a bunch of people who are controlling and manipulative and, and like, let me get three steps ahead of everyone else. It's like really easy to adopt that kind of petty mindset where like, well, let me get four steps ahead of you then. And let me do, you know, that's why it's very important to curate your company as much as you can. You know, I know we can't always with in-laws and colleagues and we can't always be in control <laughs> of who we're around all the time. But what you do have the power to do is to say, this voice gets a vote in my mind. This voice does not. I think that is such a great way to close our conversation. I've got one last question. This podcast is called Late Learner. What have you learned lately that you were wrong about? Oh, that's such a great question. What have I learned lately that I've been wrong about? My my answer isn't optimist. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me. Give me the goods. Okay. <laughs> you asked for it. So I... I can be really naive. And for most of my life, I've really assumed like every single person is a good person. And if they are acting out in some way that is, you know, quote unquote bad, it's because they're in pain. And I think that's mostly mm. true. The overwhelming majority of, of people are in despair in some way. And whenever they they are acting kind of rudely or badly or whatever, it's because they're lost. They've lost their center. It's a very human thing. I've lost my center a million times. I, I have acted out outside of my integrity a million times. But what I've really come to accept, which has been a sort of bit of a sad thing, but has helped me protect myself and my space, is that there is a, there's a small, tiny margin of people who are so unconscious, they can never hold what you have to give they're not seeking to improve. Mm. They're not seeking to do anything but feel in some way superior. And those are people you just need to avoid. They're not worth the conversation. Mm. They're not worth your energy or time. Like, I hate the feeling because I'm a therapist, you know, like so much of my work is like people can change. That's true, but like people have to want to change. And if some people don't don't have the desire to change in this lifetime. Mm. And so that's really what I've learned coming out of my 30s and going into my 40s is that, oh, like not everyone is interested in growing, changing, evolving, and being like more and more conscious. Like not everybody cares. Some people just want to some people are really just like truly comfortable in, in drama. It sounds like such a great distinction going into 2024 with, mm -hmm. it feels like at least my spidey senses of working in my community and kind of being in this world of people looking to be far more intentional with the people they have around them, the people they serve. And I wonder if that is your experience as well, or just my bias laying over. <laughs> Yeah, no, I'm always trying to be more intentional with everything. And I think the the clinical term is healthy detachment. Mm, I love that. Is that like, again, we think like estrangement or cutting this person yeah. off or this person is language. toxic. We're like, back to the language. <sighs> We're back to the power of language. Such a lighthouse. Like healthy detachment is I might still have to be around you, 
I might, we might still work together. We might still uh, some, in some way cross paths, but have you heard of gray rocking? No. Okay. So this is, it's, I don't know who coined this term, but it's not mine. Gray rocking is when you are around people that are maybe like really have strong narcissistic tendencies or something. They don't view themselves as the problem and they're causing a lot of pain and there's not much to be done about it. The the dynamic that I'm discussing. Gray rocking is when you just act as boring as a little gray rock sitting. What? (laughs) Just to get, yes. The idea is that you don't give any energy in trying to be like, you know what? I'm going to be so cheerful. They're not going to dictate my mood, blah, blah, blah. And you also don't become so defensive where you're like, I'm going to prove myself and I'm going to walk in there. I'm not giving them an ounce of anything and I'm going to be stone cold and blah, blah, blah. It's like you just have a healthy detachment. You're just a gray rock in the moments that you have to be there. And you do as much as possible to limit those interactions. Sometimes they're unavoidable. And when they are, like, I'm not doing the best job of explaining this, but everyone should Google gray rocking. (laughs) I think it's such a great, such a great tool of just, you're forgettable. You're polite enough. You just, there's this scene in, um, I think, what's that movie that like Matt Damon, Brad Pitt, George Clooney? The uh, Ocean's Eleven? Ocean's Eleven. Yeah. Where they're like training Matt Damon to be forgettable. Hmm. And like, that's what you want to be when you're gray rocking is just kind of like- That sounds like my biggest nightmare (laughs) to be forgettable. (laughs) Well, it, it it is a way of like healthy detachment from a dynamic that's so easy to get sucked Mm. into. I mean, maybe you or people listening don't have a single person in their life where it's like, I hate the expression, no one can make you feel a certain way. Some people can. It's like, that's not true. When someone walks into a room and they're being really aggressive or screaming or whatever, like it's okay to feel scared. They can make you, sure, people can make you feel better, worse, all the things. And if someone is regularly making you feel like, like you're really contracted and they're just like, you're hemorrhaging your energy around them. Healthy detachment, gray rocking, great wow. strategy. Wow, this is such a, uh, this is amazing. Catherine, I could talk to you forever. Thank you so much. How do people find you? How do people get your book? How do people take your quiz? And I'll link it all in the show notes, but please. Thank you for having me. These are such great questions. I love this. Um, so the book is The Perfectionist Guide to Losing Control, A Path to Peace and Power. It's framed in perfectionism, but it, it is really, to your point, like it's really a book about how to understand what it is you really want, not what you think you want, but what would feel good to you and how to get what you want. And I am on Instagram at Catherine Morgan Schaffler. That's also the name of my website, CatherineMorganSchaffler.com. And the book is on Audible. It's wherever you buy books. It's on eBooks. It's It just got selected as um, one of Amazon's best books of 2023. Easily, and, easily. Um, yes. So and good. one of USA Today's favorite books of 2023. Oh. So I was so excited. I just got all that news. So that was well-deserved. Well, Catherine, thank you so much. Thank you. You know, I love that Catherine gave us a much more useful and helpful approach for us if we find ourselves with perfectionist tendencies, how to make them adaptive instead of maladaptive, and also such smart frameworks of how to identify and complement others with different traits, and also figuring out how do we collaborate and really come together. So cool. 
I have linked all of her info, including her book, The Perfectionist Guide to Losing Control, in the show notes. And if you have read this book, please consider writing a review on Amazon or wherever you bought it. It makes a huge difference to get these ideas in the hands of people that really, really could help. And as for you, how are you doing with your intentions for the new year? If you're wanting someone to be in your corner with you, collaborating and guiding you to your brightest version of yourself without all of the noise kind of getting in the way and keeping you off track, you really need to jump on a free call with me and see what's possible. You can go to allisonhair.com forward slash schedule and let's talk about it. And in the meantime, Thanks for listening and sharing this show. It means so much to me when you share it. I love seeing it. And it would also mean so much to me if you would leave a written review on your Apple podcast player or wherever you listen. Until the next episode, I'll see you on the socials.